listening to an extra shot episode on the Project Zion podcast, a shorter episode that lets you get your Project Zion fix in between our full-length episodes. It might be shorter time-wise, but hopefully not in content. So regardless of the temperature at which you prefer your caffeine, sit back and enjoy this extra shot. The music has been provided by Ben Howington. You can find his music at mormonguitar.com. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Project Zion. In this episode, I've been sitting on a message that popped into my head one day at work. In its entirety, it just popped into my head beginning to end. And I don't know if it's just a message for myself. Uh, but this happened a couple months ago, and I've just been sitting on it. And I thought I'd finally get around to recording it. Maybe some of you could find some use out of what I have to say. When I was a child and it was just Jenny and me, my dad took me to Reams, a local grocery store, on his bike. It was a cooler autumn night when he strapped me into the, the faded pastel peach colored bike carrier on the back of his 21 speed bike. He pedaled down the road silently, the tires softly bending to the cold dark asphalt. We made it to our location where an Irish white and green caricature seemed to dance clad in a kilt. Incandescent lamps artificially lit the hand-painted signs advertising the latest produce specials enclosed by chicken wire. We went inside and he let me pick out a treat. I chose a string of sixlets, ten for a dollar. We chose something for Jenny, too. We went home to the basement where my dad had his Texas Instruments computer set up to play Atari video games recorded on cassette tapes. I showed Jenny the candy I got at the store, feeling special and singled out. I'll come back later to this thought that I had when I was a kid. One of the stories that have come to mind, especially as going through a faith transition that we can find in the Bible, is the birth narrative for the Israelites, and that was the Exodus coming out of Egypt. Um, going through my faith transition, I've kind of taken a different look at scripture, especially when looking at biblical scholarship. And this beginning narrative has um, been questioned highly, I guess, by scholars, whether or not it actually happened. Uh, when I was listening to a book, something popped out at me. If we do want to look at it, as more of a natural narrative than a, a miraculous narrative. And that's found in one of John Shelby Spong's books, known as Jesus for the Non-Religious, on page 60. And he's talking about just whether or not things have actually happened. And he says, This principle is best illustrated by looking at the pivotal story in Israel's history which depicts the moment of Israel's birth as a nation, a moment that is celebrated annually in the liturgy of the Passover. The climax to that story is a huge miracle of the parting of the waters of the Red Sea, Exodus 14. Cecil B. DeMille implanted the picture of the event upon our minds in his dramatic 
but not scholarly, motion picture entitled The Ten Commandments. It would surprise DeMille and many biblical literalists to learn that the great majority of biblical scholars today regard the Red Sea story as something that, if it happened at all, happened quite differently from the way the sacred scriptures suggest. This means that the major miracle story around which the beginning of the historical identity of the Jewish nation is organized, and which became the central episode in their sacred scriptures, is now regarded by scholars as suspect at best and dead wrong at worst. So what's wrong with the miracle story? First, if the Israelites literally went through the Red Sea, they went well out of their way. In addition, the Red Sea is about 120 miles wide at its narrowest point. So if they went through, even on dry land, in 10 hours, as the book of Exodus states, they would have had to average 12 miles per hour, which means walking 5-minute miles. This would be an amazing, yet a miraculous accomplishment, particularly for a motley crew of people of all sizes, ages, and physical conditions. The biblical text in Hebrew, however, actually refers to the body of water that was crossed as Yom Suf. Those words translated in scripture as Red Sea literally mean Sea of Reeds. Today, Yom Suf is identified not with the Red Sea at all, but with a marshy swampland just north of what is now known as the Gulf of Suez. That area is covered with water little more than a meter deep. Difficult, but not impossible, to navigate, and less than 20 miles across. This knowledge alone causes us to suspect that the reality of that moment in history was quite different from the supernatural rendition that found its way into the sacred story of the Jews some 300 years later. Imagine, if you can, the terror present among those fleeing unarmed slave people when they looked behind them and saw some miles away the cloud of dust created by the Egyptian army coming in hot pursuit of their escaping source of cheap labor. These slave people then looked ahead and saw a marshy swampland that would be difficult to navigate in the best of circumstances. There was no way they could escape the Egyptian soldiers and their iron chariots. They were on the brink of extermination, either by the sword or by drowning. It was a crisis without visible means of solution. To postpone death for as long as possible, they fled into the swamp. As slave people fleeing their oppression, they traveled light. They had little but the clothes on their backs. So they made each step count as the distant Egyptians bore relentlessly down upon them. When the Egyptians reached the edge of the marsh, the Sea of Reeds, the Israelites were perhaps no more than a few hundred yards into it. Feeling supremely confident and sensing an easy victory, the Egyptians plunged into the marshland after the Jews, burdened with iron carriages, heavy armor, and swords and spears. The Egyptian army bogged down. The Hebrew slaves continued to step slowly but inexorably onward. Twenty miles is still quite a trip, and it took a number of days before they finally reached firm soil. When they were at last through Yom Suf, with a note of enormous relief and exultant triumph, They picked up the pace, walking boldly into the wilderness, while the Egyptians sunk deeper and deeper into the mire. It was a life-changing event. How could they not, in this time in history, proclaim that God had delivered them? Having nothing with which to defeat the Egyptians, they had nonetheless survived. Clearly the wonder of God's natural world 
had intervened to save them. Some 12 generations went by before the story of that astounding exodus even was written down. Of course it grew in detail. Of course the miracle was heightened over the years, but the experience itself left an indelible imprint on the Jewish people. God had delivered them. God loved them. God must have a purpose for them. They were, from that day on, said to be God's specially chosen people, bound by their covenant with God and destined to be the nation through whom all the nations of the world would ultimately be blessed. God was ever after pursued to be one who is dominant over both water and nature. The Jews celebrated this truth in their liturgies and told and retold their epic. When this epic finally became the sacred Torah, the holy scriptures destined to be read in Jewish houses of worship, it was ultimately called the Word of God. I thought of that story because, in a way, when you look at it in the natural sense, when they walked through a meter deep of water and nothing but maybe the clothes on their backs, you could see that in their weakness, in this instance, they were made strong. And in the Egyptians' strength, with their heavy iron chariots, swords, shields, they were made weak. To tie this in, I had another section of scripture that had popped into my mind. And it's found both in Matthew and Luke. I'm just going to read the Luke version in the NRSV. Luke 18, verses 18 through 25. And it says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God have an annotated Bible, and in some of, between the different chapters, it says that um, the fact that Jesus is saying that he has to give absolutely everything away is meant to be taken as hyperbole. Um, It's an exaggeration of sorts. And if you want to look at it that way, I suppose that um, Jesus isn't really answering what he should do, but rather getting the person to think about uh, what what would be the best scenario for them by flipping the thing on their heads. Like, for example, the opposite of that would be wrong, right? To hoard everything that you have and not help anybody out. However, even out of biblical fundamentalists out there, I have not found one person that takes these verses literally. I haven't found anybody, not too many people anyway, that go out and sell everything that they have and give everything away to the poor. In reality, if somebody were to do that, that's really poor advice. I'll just call it out as it is. 
And I don't think that's exactly what is being asked in this verse. But I wanted to highlight it and bring it up because as the Yom Suf story that I brought up with the Exodus and them being blessed in their weakness, I just wanted to focus on what is really meaningful in life. And I've read, I think it was a Dave Ramsey book, but I'm not sure. It was a book on finances a long time ago. I read it and it talked about what we need in life personally, what we need taken care of to have fulfillment. And as we go through being an infant on up through being a teenager to an adult, the level of things that we need becomes a little bit more complicated and we might need a few more things to be fulfilled. For example, when you're an infant, you only need very basic things to have fulfillment. However, fulfillment is an arc in that there's a point at which we don't need any more to be fulfilled. And in fact, if we are to keep seeking out even more fulfillment, when we have reached everything we could possibly need to be fulfilled, obtaining more possessions will actually take away from our fulfillment. It's an arc. And then it'll go back down. And you can see that for people that have things that take away from their time. It's a point where you don't own your possessions. Your possessions begin to own you because you have to put more time into your possessions and what they're really worth. And this is the example that I remember that was brought up in the book. Maybe instead of going and buying a hot tub, because the hot tub could, and in fact, become one of those possessions that could own you, because you have to put in so many hours, not only the money to buy it, but you'd have to put in so many hours to keep it clean and to maintain it to that maybe you'd get more fulfillment if you just went down to a rec center or took a hot bath and then you wouldn't be wasting all the time upkeeping that possession in your backyard. So what I think some good advice from this chapter could mean is maybe if you did sell some of those possessions that began to own you and take away from your own fulfillment, if you no longer had to worry about all these extra things you don't have to give all your money away because you still need money to sustain yourself. But liquefying those assets, in a sense, they would no longer own you and you would have time freed up to spend doing things that would actually bring you more fulfillment, like serving other people. There's just a point where um, you have to be introspective and look into yourself and ask what would give me actual fulfillment and what is the best way to spend my time? Is it in taking care of possessions or taking care of other people? I think ultimately what's going on here is in the kingdom of God, like Jesus is pointing out, you're not going to have a heavy offset of rich versus poor, but people will have time to serve one another. And I, I think this is really fitting for the season of Lent. You have to ask yourself, what in a hierarchy of priorities, what what are the things that are most important to my life? Is it possessions or is it people? And is it the relationships that I'm creating with people? I want to read a part of a book by Brene Brown from Daring Greatly. And she says, Joy comes to us in moments, ordinary moments. We risk missing out on joy when we get too busy chasing down the extraordinary. Scarcity culture may keep us afraid of living small, ordinary lives, but when you talk to people who have survived great losses, it is clear that joy is not a constant, 
without exception all the participants who spoke to me about their losses and what they missed the most spoke about ordinary moments. If I could come downstairs and see my husband sitting at the table and cursing at the newspaper. If I could hear my son giggling in the backyard. My mom would send me the craziest texts. She never knew how to work her phone. I'd give anything to get one of those texts right now. I think we have to ask ourselves, am I chasing down the extraordinary when I could have real joy and real fulfillment in the ordinary? I brought up the story about my dad when I was three years old taking me to Reims because that was an ordinary moment, but it's a moment that's etched into my memory. It was a moment when I felt singled out and felt special. And and I just want to leave with a part of uh, some audio from a video from Sam Harris and where he explains all we have is right now. And I just want to thank you again for tuning in and listening. We want to talk today about death. Now, most of us do our best not to think about death, but, but the, there's always part of our minds that knows this can't go on forever. We, the, part of us always knows that we're just a doctor's visit away or a, a phone call away from being starkly reminded with, with the fact of our own mortality or of those closest to us. Now, I'm sure many of you in this room have experienced this in some form. You, you, you must know how uncanny it is to suddenly be, be thrown out of the normal course of your life and just be given the, the full-time job of not dying or caring for someone who is. But the, the one thing people tend to realize at moments like this is that they wasted a lot of time when life was normal. It's not, just what they, it's not just what they did with their time. It's not just that they spent too much time working or, or compulsively checking email. It's that, it's that they, they cared about the wrong things. They, they regret what they cared about. Their, their attention was bound up in petty concerns. The year after year, when life was normal. And this is a paradox, of course, because... We all know this epiphany is coming. Don't you know this is coming? Don't you know that there's going to come a day when you'll be sick or someone close to you will die and you'll look back on the kinds of things that captured your attention and you'll think, what what was I doing? You know this, and yet if you're like most people... You will spend most of your time in life tacitly presuming you'll live forever. I mean, it's like watching a bad movie for the fourth time. Yeah. Or, or bickering with your spouse. I mean, this, these things only make sense in light of eternity. I mean, there better be a heaven if we're going to waste our time like that. Okay. There are ways to, to really live in the present moment. What, what's the alternative? It is always now. However much you feel you may need to plan for the future, to anticipate it, to mitigate risks, the reality of your life is now.
Project Zion is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers team from Community of Christ. The views expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official views of the Latter-day Seekers team or of Community of Christ. 